This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U Mobile. 5G now with you. Good morning. I'm Shazana Mukhtar, and this is the best of the Breakfast Grill for 2022. All this week, we're revisiting important and noteworthy conversations that we've had on the show throughout the year. Today, we're beginning our retrospective with a focus on the economy. In January, a fragile recovery was underway in the global economy before rising inflation derailed the growth trajectory. Global inflation was compounded by the outbreak of the Ukraine war in February and the deterioration of ties between Europe and Russia. Keith Kam spoke to Brian Coulton, chief economist at Fitch Ratings, about their global economic outlook and how multiple factors coalesced to create volatility for markets this year. I think we've had a little bit of a perfect storm for the world economy and we've had the European gas crisis has intensified massively as Russia has weaponized their gas pipeline gas supplies to Europe. That's probably the biggest negative factor. But what we've also seen, secondly, is that the Fed and other central banks are now very aggressively speeding up their monetary policy tightening. They're raising interest rates much more rapidly. Uh, that's already started to happen. But if we think about where they're going over the next six months, 12 months, It's going to be much faster than we were thinking was going to be the case back in June. That's going to weigh on growth heavily. And then when we look at China, the property slump there has just lasted a lot longer and has been a lot deeper than we were anticipating back in June. So those three factors all come at the same time. And all the major drivers of world growth, the US, the Eurozone and China, uh, are, are all looking at much weaker prospects than before. We're actually forecasting recessions in the Eurozone, the UK this year and in the US next year in, in our baseline. So it's a, it's a pretty downbeat outlook. Brian also shared his thoughts on when global prices could stabilise and markets return to even keel. You know, one of the reasons we've got into this inflation problem coming out of the pandemic were all these pressures on manufacturing supply chains that we've seen. You know, there's the semiconductor shortage, the cost of shipping freight from China to the US or China to Europe, you know, rose astronomically. We were seeing the time it takes to to transport goods from a port in China, you know, to a port in the US and getting them offloaded and, and into the lorries. That had increased massively as well. All these supplier delivery delays were coming through in surveys. Nearly all of those indicators have started to get better. And so, you know, we're actually seeing, you know, some countries now that they're, they're building up a little bit of a glut of semiconductor inventories. You know, South Korea, for instance, they're seeing declining uh, semiconductor sales. So we're seeing surveys of how long does it take for firms to get component parts? Those are coming way back down now. These costs of shipping rates, these are all falling. So those are a big part of the inflation story. We call it sort of core goods inflation. So the part of core inflation that's not related to services, which is still a problem and a growing problem, as I've discussed, but core goods inflation definitely looks like it's peaked now. And and that will be something that that helps bring down headline inflation rates through 2023, we think. The other piece of good news is, you know, one of the big concerns after the Russia-Ukraine war broke out was what was happening to global food prices. A massive increase in wheat prices because Ukraine's a big exporter, Russia's important as well. But we've had almost a full reversal of that increase. So some of those pressures on global food prices also should start to ease into 2023, I think. So, yeah, it's it's maybe uh, clutching at straws a little bit, but there's a couple couple of little bits of good news there. That was Brian Coulton, Chief Economist at Fitch Ratings, who spoke with Keith Kam in September. 
In a bid to put the brakes on red-hot inflation, the U.S. Federal Reserve began increasing interest rates this year, hiking the benchmark rate seven times so far. This has resulted in the U.S. dollar strengthening against other currencies, with detrimental effects for emerging markets. I asked Maurice Opsfeldt, the former chief economist with the IMF and professor of economics at the University of California, about how the U.S. dollar cycle is predictive of downturns in developing economies. There is no 100% guarantee, but this has been the general pattern, you know, in the sense that we observe very um, high negative correlations between the strength of the dollar and a range of indicators that are critical for emerging markets. Now, there are a number of mechanisms behind this. One of of the most important is that uh, emerging markets tend to borrow considerably in dollars. If you look at the, uh, you know, debt liabilities of emerging market businesses, uh, they're they're roughly around 80% in dollars. So this means that, you know, if if you have a debt denominated in dollars and the dollar strengthens, then that debt becomes worth much more relative to the domestic currency in which you are likely to to be doing business. This is really a major factor through which a strengthening of the dollar propagates tighter financial conditions throughout the world. And that's another key correlation we see, that a uh, stronger dollar is correlated with lower asset prices throughout the world, uh, in addition to commodity prices, um, with with lower capital flows to emerging markets, with lower... um, leverage and credit extension throughout the world. And this is, of course, going to be negative, particularly for emerging markets. There's a particular vulnerability now because countries throughout the world, including emerging economies, are dealing with a a particularly severe problem of inflation, something they haven't had to deal with uh, in a while, and certainly not on this universal scale where everybody is facing the same problem. Now, we know what, what the drivers are, you know, COVID was a global shock. Reopening has been a bumpy process for everyone due to constricted supply chains. The problems have been somewhat less in uh, Asia, partially because countries in Asia dealt with COVID better, partially because, you know, they're they're more embedded into global the global supply chain centered on China, you know, for many reasons. But um, is really a global problem. Also, there's the Ukraine war, the effect of that on food prices, on energy prices, which were um, elevated even before the war broke out in uh, February of this year. So, uh, you know, imagine that you're a country dealing with uh, inflation. So your central bank has been raising interest rates. And suddenly, the Fed hikes interest rates, the dollar strengthens, your currency depreciates. That's going to raise import prices further. That's going to worsen your inflationary pressures. And you as a central bank trying to control inflation are going to say, well, I need to tighten more because um, uh, otherwise my efforts to control inflation are going to be for naught. Maurice also spoke about what emerging markets could do to mitigate the drawbacks of a dominant U.S. dollar. A lot of this is driven by the U.S., but um, there are other factors, you know, simply driven by reopening uh, throughout the world and the Ukraine war. So I wouldn't say this is entirely um, a U.S. issue. There would be some tightening in uh, response to inflation pressures even without the exceptional U.S. situation. But, you know, things would not be as extreme as they are now. What can emerging markets do? Well, 
they can um, intervene in foreign exchange markets to limit the depreciation of their currencies. The downside of that is that with pressures on currencies this strong, they might have to use considerable um, amounts of their international reserves to attain their exchange rate goals, because when they intervene, they basically um, sell dollar reserves and buy their own currencies to try to strengthen their, their currencies. Now, one of, one of the factors that is helping emerging markets, certainly the more important ones, the bigger ones, and I'm thinking of you know Indonesia, Malaysia, Brazil, for the moment, is that they do have international reserves. So the markets look at that and understand that there's a war chest that the government has to, uh, to backstop the economy. So if you run down those reserves in any significant way, you risk harming market confidence. Mm-hmm. Another thing that um, countries could do is they could um, impose capital controls on financial outflows. This is something that Malaysia did um, in the uh, Asian crisis in the late 1990s. That would relieve pressure on currencies. But again, it comes with other potential costs. It may be hard to enforce given that countries have to some degree liberalized markets. Uh, there may be reputational costs if you if you limit non-resident flows, because those are you know the international players that you might want to depend on in the future. And generally, a number, a number of governments have uh, relied on those inflows to um, market their, uh, their debts, particularly um, higher, higher volumes of, of borrowing during the pandemic. So again, that, that could hamper you in the future, and governments are going to be reluctant to do that. So there are things that can be done, but there are negative trade-offs that make them uh, costly to some degree. That was Maurice Obsfeld, the former chief economist of the IMF and professor of economics at, Uni- at the University of California, whom I spoke to in October. We'll have more highlights from conversations on the Breakfast Grill in 2022 after these messages. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back to the best of The Breakfast Grill 2022, the economy edition. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. Today, we're revisiting conversations on how the economy fared this year. In the first half, we looked at the global perspective and the impact of a mighty U.S. dollar, as well as the Fed monetary tightening. How might this play out for regional economies, particularly ASEAN, as we head into the new year? Philip C. spoke to Manu Baskaran, founding partner and president of research and advisory firm Centennial Asia Advisors, on his outlook for the region. I think uh, 2023 will see a kind of normalization of growth. We'll see the uh, long-term effects of global monetary tightening coming through and the energy price shock, right? So clearly, it is going to be a difficult year. First, global demand for what we manufacture and ship out will come under pressure. And uh, so there will be a slowdown at at the global level. Secondly, I cannot believe that we could have this kind of aggressive monetary tightening and no financial consequences. I cannot believe that the UK pension funds were the only ones that were complacently perhaps misusing derivative instruments and taking on more risk than they thought variable. Uh, So I would expect in my baseline scenario for that to be a lot more, at least many explosions on the financial side. Very hard to predict where they will be and the timing, but I'm very sure from history that after a long period of 
extremely low interest rates, uh, ultra easy monetary conditions, <clears throat> the Fed basically backstopping financial markets, a lot of imbalances or excesses that will be exposed. Manu also elaborated on how greater economic integration among ASEAN economies is key to drive the region forward on a global scale. I'm a fan of greater integration. You know, in a world where you're getting these um, uh, increasing uh, you know, kinds of protectionism, inward-looking policies, and all that, ASEAN needs to protect itself uh, to the best extent possible by first um, increasing in- economic integration within it, and secondly, by um, crafting more uh, economic partnership agreements, free trade agreements, whatever, with other <clears throat> large economies. We need to protect ourselves, protect ourselves from protectionism, right? So the question is how how practical this is, and uh, this you know in, inward-looking policies are not just in the U.S. and China; they are unfortunately in India, in, in Indonesia, everywhere, right? So <clears throat> when you have that trend um, of inward-looking policies, more industrial policies that favour domestic producers, creating <clears throat> you know domestic industries where there were none, it is difficult to get the notion of free trade across, right? I mean, we all know that trade liberalization produces very good results in the long term, but in the short term, it produces losses that are borne, you know, very narrowly by certain vested interests, certain sectors, and they have the incentive to resist, and they do resist quite effectively sometimes. So that's the fundamental problem. But we, if you want to succeed in this world that is going to be so much more difficult, we have to find the wisdom to do that. And I think one way of overcoming this kind of problems at the ASEAN level is for like-minded countries, maybe Malaysia and Singapore, being the more advanced countries in the region, the more open ones, to take the lead and show through a, a, a number of initiatives. It could be a cross-border cooperation on Iskandar, for instance, or something. And, and show actually this kind of integration produces more winners than losers. And it's a good thing. That was Manu Baskaran, founding partner and president of Centennial Asia Advisors, speaking to Philip C. On the Malaysian home front, Wong Xiaoning spoke to former central banker Tan Sri Andrew Sheng and distinguished fellow at the Institute of Capital Market Research for his take on the economic future of the country. I think on economic future, we should be very uh, optimistic. Uh, crisis brings opportunities. And I think uh, crisis is a time for us to reflect uh, where we went right, where we went wrong. Self-reflection is very important. The big picture is that Malaysia is in ASEAN. ASEAN is in a sweet spot. It's neutral. It doesn't get caught in geopolitics. It could be caught in geopolitics. It is in the fastest growth zone uh, in the world. Plenty of natural resources, a very young population, and really going places. So the question really is, Malaysia within ASEAN, how do we perform? Where are we going? Do we want to be caught into uh, racial, religious, uh, geopolitical wars? Uh, or do we unite together and create a prosperous, you know, inclusive uh, green nation? We live in one of the richest biodiversity of forests and, and seas, a uh, relatively small population. Uh, and, and therefore, we have a huge opportunity to be a cutting edge of ESG. That's the opportunity. How we get there is a real challenge. Tansri Andrew also spoke about the structural issues that plague Malaysia and the need for political will to reform for the country to fill its rich potential. 
Well, I think uh, Malaysia is in some sense uh, paradise uh, with, unfortunately, uh, the politics that is uh, more concerned about the short term than about the long term. I think the real issue is how do we, you know, get the leaders that we need and then, you know, hopefully these leaders will shape the future uh, in a way that is better for our children uh, and our children's children. Uh, I think that's that's the challenge for uh, you know every every country at the moment. As you know, politics is toxic worldwide. It's not just in Malaysia. Okay, in Malaysia we have our special uh, special brand of it, but at the same time, I you know I I, I still basically believe that if we use this post-COVID opportunity to start have a decent conversation, which we have not had uh, for the last 65 years. Uh, we've had it after the 69 the racial problems that we had, and that created the NEP. But and, and I think that has achieved a lot in terms of more social inclusivity. We have pr- produced a true Bumiputra professional class. But what, what NEP has not uh, succeeded in is to create a uh, Bumiputra entrepreneurial class. And uh, that is the challenge of the future. Because mm-hmm. without entrepreneurship, you won't be able to get the uh, income and wealth uh, that the nation needs. I think we are a small nation. I think, you know, uh, you know, 33, 35 million people is still very small. Geographically, we are not, not small, but we have lots of natural resources. And how do we now grow uh, or we emerge uh, as a model nation uh, for harmony and for living with nature is very critical. Uh, we do not want, I've reached the age and, uh, and, and for, uh, you know, uh, I have no children, so I, I, I cannot plan this. But let me say this for others, you know, where, where, where should our, how should our children, or our children's children enjoy what we have enjoyed currently? And if they cannot enjoy it, something is seriously wrong. So the the issue, the challenge for us is how do we work together to make you know the place much better than when we uh, when when we leave it. Put it this way. That was former central banker Tan Sri Andrew Sheng who spoke to Wang Xiaoning. That caps our retrospective of interviews on the economy in 2022. You can listen to all the conversations featured today via podcast on the BFM app or on our website, bfm.my. This has been the best of the Breakfast Grill 2022, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.